The next panel discussion was with Drs. Tony Shueri and Robert Mozer. And Dr. Mozer began by presenting a woman with pulmonary metastases at diagnosis. The patient was a 65-year-old female who had a nephrectomy for clear cell carcinoma. And after an evaluation, she was found to have multiple lung metastases. They weren't aware of it? Well, oftentimes for the initial evaluation, the urologist does a chest x-ray and a CT scan of the abdomen and pelvis and doesn't image the chest. So when the patients refer to the medical oncologist to complete the staging, we do a full CT scan, and that's when we oftentimes find the pulmonary nodules. And how had she presented? She presented with hematuria. And they thought she had localized disease. They thought she had localized disease and did an nephrectomy, yeah. And then when you saw her, it was evident she had lung mets? When we saw her, she had evidence of lung metastasis, yes. What was her life situation? Well, she was asymptomatic. She was feeling well, as is typical for most patients with this disease. Family, which lived by herself, or a spouse? She has a spouse who's very dedicated to her care. Is she working? She was working outside the home at the time of her initial presentation, yeah. So this is back in 2003. What happened at that point? She was treated with cytokine therapy. The program that she was treated with was an outpatient interleukin-2 plus interferon, which was started in February of 2003. But at her first evaluation by a CT scan, she had stable disease, and she continued with stable disease for about a year when she progressed again in the lung. So at that time, we evaluated her at MSKCC, and we had a phase two trial of axitinib, which was the initial exitnib study that was conducted in RCC. And it was in patients who had progressed on cytokines. So she was enrolled on that exitnib trial. It was clear by cycle two that she was responding. She had a good partial response, and she remained progression-free for 18 months on exitinib, which was quite typical for the progression-free interval we'd seen with exitinib on that trial that was published. The side effects she experienced with exitinib were diarrhea and hypertension. And the other side effect that was quite interesting, and I think this was the first time I had seen this, was dysphonia associated with the exitinib. And there are several patients now that I've observed with that effect from exitinib. And it's really a sense of hoarseness or difficulty speaking that the patient experienced. And it's persistent and it can be problematic. What's the pathophysiology? We don't know. In the several patients that I've seen with dysphonia, we've referred them to a head and neck surgeon who's visualized their vocal cords and they have a normal exam. Is it only seen with exitinib or other TKIs or other agents? There has been reports of it with pazopinib, which is a similar drug. And interestingly enough, there's been reports of it with the new compound by Avio, the AV951 or Tavazinib, in the phase two trial that they did with that drug, which is also a very powerful inhibitor of VEGFR2. Dysphonia was reported in their study as well. But I've only observed it in patients treated with exitinib. How about you, Tony? Have you seen anybody with it? And what do you think is going on? Yeah, I have seen it in patients with bazopinib. 
and a few patients I treated with pazobinib, they all had, like Bob was saying, some sort of dysphonia, hoarseness, where the head and neck surgeon said that the exam was normal. Even we did a CT neck and more evaluation with a gastroenterologist to see if there's any reflux or anything, but everything was negative. I don't think we understand it yet and why it's not with sunitinib or sorafenib. I have never seen it. We still don't understand Maybe we can follow up with what happened with the patient, but it's, you know, it's interesting. Here you have this woman five years ago with a significant response to this agent, and it's still not available. Why is that? Well, you know, it was brought into the clinical arena around the same time as sunitinib. I think there's been some issues with development. It is currently in a pivotal phase three trial that's comparing exitinib to serafinib in second-line therapy following progression to sunitinib or bevazivimab plus interferon. So, I mean, we hope to get an answer and potentially approval with exitinib based on that pivotal phase three trial. If that study is positive comparing it to serafinib, how do you think it would affect clinical practice? Of course, we have to see the numbers and the magnitude, but... Definitely, we do, because currently the standard therapy after failure of sunitinib and or serafinib is everolimus, the oral mTOR inhibitor. And this will not be compared in the access study that Dr. Modser is talking about. This will not be compared to exitinib. The control arm is serafinib. So I think people are going to compare head-to-head the progression-free survival, which is kind of unfair because the population, the characteristics are different. So what happened with this lady next? Well, the other adverse event she had was diarrhea. She had grade 3 diarrhea. That's a prominent side effect with exitinib. And the other interesting aspect that I remember is she did have skin changes. She had like a thinning of the skin and a feeling of pain on the hands and the feet, but it wasn't the same type of hand-foot-skin reaction and appearance that we see with serafinib or sininib. It was like somewhat of a different character. How about the hypertension? I've heard that it's maybe a little more difficult with exitinib. What happened with her? Was it easy to control? It was managed with hypertensives, but exitinib is given continuously, where sinitinib is on a intermittent schedule. And so sometimes with sinitinib, there are ups and downs in the blood pressure, With exitinib being given continuously, we can't kind of wait for that period of recovery. So it makes management of the hypertension essential since it's continuously given. That's interesting. Tony, do you see people get hypotensive in the off period, you know, symptomatically with sunitinib? Absolutely. And I think Bob raised a very important question. There's a short report by the French group by Udar et al. published in the New England Journal of Medicine looking at the blood pressure monitored from home in the four-week-on, two-week-off period. And there is definitely a decrease, an increase in the four-week-on and a decrease in the two-week-off. So I have some patients where they take themselves off some hypertensive medication during the two-week-off. And it is really not easily monitored because unlike excitinib or pazopinib, these drugs that are given continuously, with sunitinib, sometimes patients don't come at the end of the four-week. Comes in the two-week-off, we take the blood pressure, We may not ask him what were his numbers home. He may not have taken the blood pressure at home. So managing blood pressure with sunitinib because of its schedule is tricky. That's fascinating. What was the next step? Well, she did eventually progress on the exitinib. And at that time, since she still had disease confined to the lung, was asymptomatic, she had been on medical therapy for a long time. She wanted to take a break from any treatment. So 
we followed her along with serial CT scans and a surveillance-like approach. And she did well with continued slow progression, but six months later... Can I just ask you, because you know, it's interesting, you know, I don't hear about too many cases like that. Of course, in colon cancer, that's done deliberately. Was this really because she asked about it, or is this something you do in your practice? There is a tendency to continue treatment once patients are on, but this was the patient's choice. She had been on Exitinib for quite a long time. She had had some side effects, and she felt that she needed a break. So since she was asymptomatic, we followed her along, which I think is a reasonable course of action with this disease. I guess, Tony, it also brings up the question, are there patients who up front you can observe without starting systemic therapy with metastatic disease? Yes, absolutely. I cannot give you a percentage overall, but those are the patient in general with a small tumor burden, with good MSKCC risk criteria, who are willing to follow up and to switch and start a new agent, who are reliable for follow-up. And I think these patients are there, and they don't need to immediately start therapy. So she had a six-month treatment holiday, but then started running into problems. Then she became symptomatic. She developed a cough, and on her CT scan, it was clear that she was progressing and needed medical intervention. Unfortunately, now she's into the window of the new drugs. She's made it from 2004 out a little bit in order to maybe have some other options available. So since she had had a good response to exitinib, we started on sunitinib. And she responded to sunitinib. And she was on sunitinib for quite a long time with a good response until recently in September this year, she developed progression of disease. But she developed a second long-standing response to sunitinib. How did she tolerate the sunitinib? She noticed a difference between sunitinib and exitinib. And that was largely related to the fatigue that was associated with the sunitinib. She had more. She had more, and we wound up reducing her dose down to 37.5 milligrams. Tony, we were just talking about with Dan and Ron about, you know, it is kind of tough to compare the VEGF TKIs, at least right now, until we have head-to-head comparison, but we do have indirect data. What do we know right now about the side effects profile of sunitinib, pazopinib, exitinib, and serafinib, and what do we know about responses, in, like in this case, after a patient's had one to another? So we know for a fact that sequential therapy, and we're talking about VEGF target therapy here, is possible. We have studies that show a patient with VEGF refractory or resistant or independent become, independent disease, do response to other VEGF TKI. We still do not understand why. Even taking it one step further, we have looked recently at several patients from different institutions put together by the Cleveland Clinic and looked at upon reinitiation of sunitinib in patients who failed first-line sunitinib and went to have other drugs, they can again respond to sunitinib. So this is kind of little different from the era of chemotherapy where really we don't use the same drug. Why is that? Why the tumor revert to a phenotype that is sensitive again to VEGF? We still cannot understand it. And we know from retrospective studies when we had only sunitinib and sorafenib, when people used to start by sorafenib, switch to sunitinib, and vice versa, that this is feasible. You can see some activity, and it's tolerated. What about the safety and tolerability of the different VEGF TKIs? You have somebody who you're really having a major problem with one. 
Can you switch to another and see a different profile? Exactly. So, for example, with sunitinib, it seems that fatigue, diarrhea are big things. Even bone marrow suppression was between 8 and 10% grade 3, 4, neutropenia and thrombocytopenia. Other drugs, sorafenib, for example, has more hand-foot-skin reaction. However, the fatigue seems to be less. Pazopenib is the new drug, and although it hasn't been compared head-to-head, to sunitinib. It is now being compared in a study that is currently accruing. But from the data that we have from pazopanib, it seems like the fatigue is less, the bone marrow suppression, as well as the rash and the mucositis. However, with a caveat, it seems that grade 3 and 4 LFTs are higher. However, these are to be confirmed with the pivotal phase 3 trial. So this lady, if I can calculate this right, she had more than a two-year response to sunitinib? She did. She had a great response. Wow. Yeah. And that was just until last month. That was just until last month when she progressed in September. And at this point, we've started her on Everolimus. How's she doing so far? I've seen her once since she started, and she feels great on the Everolimus. One of the features with Everolimus is that patients feel very well on it with a relative lack of side effects. So we don't yet know response, but she's tolerating it very well. What do we know about the safety and tolerability issues with Everolimus and, for that matter, Tempsorolimus? And also, Tony, what do you do in terms of monitoring, for example, glucose, lipids, etc., chest imaging? Can you go through the toxicity and how you sort of look for it? So the side effect profile of mTOR inhibitor is different from VEGF-targeted therapy. While there could be still fatigue, it's definitely different from the sunitinib fatigue. I think the side effects that we focus on are mostly hyperglycemia, hyperlipidemia, and that's why I get with every visit a lipid panel, a complete metabolic panel, as well as mucositis. It seems that mucositis can sometimes be a problem. I haven't yet stopped therapy because of mucositis in patient in general, mucositis slash oral ulcers. One important issue with mTOR inhibitor that we keep hearing about is pneumonitis. So I think this is an important issue. In the pivotal phase three trial, the record one, the incidence of all-grade pneumonitis was around 14 to 15%. In my practice, I've seen it a little more, but what is important and problematic is that you see these changes in the lungs, these infiltrates, and then the radiologists call you, and then the patient reports a shortness of breath. But this is the same patient that has pulmonary nodules and lymph node metastases, and you are unable to make really hear a judgment call. So you may end up holding the treatment for some time, and in extreme cases, you may end up giving steroids, which could be a test, because if a patient has significant shortness of breath with pneumonitis diagnosed on a CT and gets better with steroid, that could be your test that that was likely in pneumonitis. You know, Bob, you were involved in the think tank that we had, and this, Tony, is actually an integrated curriculum we're doing over about a six-month period of three different audio programs. We're doing a lot of testing and try to see if we could scientifically determine what kind of impact, if any, it's going to have. But 
one of the first things we did this summer was a patterns of care study on U.S.-based medical oncologists. And we've done a lot of these in all different kinds of tumors. In general, oncologists are extremely well-informed. But one interesting thing about the side effects profile of the mTOR inhibitors were a significant number of people were not aware of what you just talked about. About 40% of the oncologists did not know about the pneumonitis, did not know about the hyperglycemia. What about the hyperlipidemia? What's the exact character of it? Well, we follow lipid profiles as well, and the patients develop elevated triglycerides commonly. Oftentimes, if they have a predisposing factor or they're on statins, then it gets worse. For the most part, though, it responds very well to statin therapy, and it's not problematic. I think the main issue is just to monitor for it and to recognize you know, that it's a side effect and it's treatable. And, for example, a patient who's already had diabetes, how much of a problem is this? Is it like giving them steroids or not in that kind of ballpark? As far as the hyperglycemia goes, we see mild elevations in sugar, but the patients that could potentially run into trouble are the ones that are diabetic to begin with. Those are the ones that have acute elevations of their glucoses. And in my experience with temsorolimus, some patients have even required hospitalization for glucose management. And that's really, it's the diabetic that you need to carefully watch when they're being treated with temsorolimus. I mean, does it make you bump the mTOR inhibitors down the line sequence-wise in people who are diabetics? It hasn't for me. No, I haven't done that for the most part when they're indicated medically. I've gone ahead with the mTOR and then managed the hyperlipidemia and the hyperglycemia. There has been several patients that have had severe brittle diabetes, though, that I have altered my care around those patients by choosing different agents first. What do we know about the mechanism of action of these agents, Tony, and maybe theoretically why they cause these kinds of unusual problems? So while this has not been described really in a clear manner, it could be that it's through the IGF receptor perhaps, although I'm not sure that down-regulating mTOR would down-regulate that. But it could be, you know, something that has to do with that pathway. On the other hand, even sunitinib, for example, which is a VEGF TKI that you would never think that may have a relation with blood sugar, have been shown to decrease blood sugar in some people. And there is a report in the British Journal of Cancer where people that had type 1 and type 2, mainly type 2 diabetes, were taken off their anti-diabetic agents. So these TKI at least, and perhaps also the mTOR inhibitor, do not have really a very narrow spectrum of activity that we at the end call targeted. Although we call them commonly targeted agent, but they do have off-target toxicities and effects. So why don't we talk about one of your cases, Tony? How about your 78-year-old man? So this is a 78-year-old gentleman with history of pathologic T3B renal cell carcinoma. So stage 3P resected four years ago. He has a past medical history of coronary artery disease, and he had a cabbage 10 years ago. As well, he has hypertension, hyperlipidemia, and mild renal insufficiency. This man presented with ongoing abdominal pain, bloating, and constipation. And after several months, a CT of the abdomen and pelvis was done, which revealed two abdominal masses with one almost in the colonic wall. And the CT chest at that time showed small pulmonary nodules between 0.5 and 1.5 centimeter. 
So this patient get a biopsy of one of the mass that was easily done and showed renal cell carcinoma consistent with his prior cancer. The pathologist compared both set of slides from his original nephrectomy and these were the same. So I want to get Bob's take on what he would be thinking at this point. But before I do, let's go back to when he first presented. Were you taking care of him then or you saw him when he had recurrence? I saw him when he had recurrence. And just looking back, he had a T3B lesion. If he were to present today, because one of the questions we get a lot from oncologists is the question of adjuvant therapy off study. Mm -hmm. So if you go back and look at him when he presented, can you talk about what you would have estimated his risk of recurrence is? What trials, if any, would have been available to him and whether or not off-study adjuvant therapy would have been consideration? This is a good question, Neil. So what dictates this man's recurrence, and there has been several nomogram and prognostic models, is mainly first his stage, which is an elevated stage, stage 3B, but also his performance status upon presentation and the grade of the tumor, which I remember his grade was grade 3. So if you want to estimate a risk for a patient, and that's a hard discussion with a patient, because when a patient asks me what's my risk and tell him it's 0 or 1, Either you're going to recur or you're not going to recur. But if there's a group of 100 or 1,000 patients, I would estimate around 40% risk of recurrence in this man. Based on that, would you offer him adjuvant therapy? The question now is that adjuvant therapy has been attempted in renal cell carcinoma using chemotherapy in the past in randomized trial, using radiation therapy, using interferon, using interleukin-2, and using different vaccines, and all yielded negative results. Or let's say results that didn't make it that the experimental arm became the standard. So currently the standard is surveillance. What is ongoing now is several large trials worldwide, and in the U.S., one large intergroup trial called the ASSURE trial led by the ECOG that randomized patient to one year of sorafenib, one year of sunitinib, or one year of placebo, two-to-one randomization, that patient with high risk may consider. So the question, would I have offered the 74, let's say at that time, would I have offered this man this trial, yes or no? What's your answer? So I would have discussed it with him, definitely. I'm not sure what is his five years survival or 10 years based on all these comorbidities. I'm not sure if he would like to commit to a year of therapy. I'm not sure if he accepts that there is a 33% chance that he will be on placebo. Knowing that if a cancer therapy worked in the advanced setting, it doesn't mean it will work in the adjuvant setting. So I cannot tell this patient that, you know, this thing will probably save your life and decrease recurrence. I don't think we have any hint of evidence yet. So Bob, is there any situation where you might treat off-study, you have a very educated patient or family member who comes up and says, look, I understand that there's no proof, but on the other hand, you can always stop treatment. There's not likely to be, you know, a lethal side effect or problem. How about giving it a try? I haven't done that. I practice evidence-based medicine and there isn't any established role for adjuvant therapy. The patient, you know, could have an adverse event related to sinitinib. It may be that it changes the natural course of the disease. It may make things more complicated. 
if and when the person does relapse regarding what's the optimal first-line therapy. So without any evidence, I wouldn't offer under any circumstances adjuvant, sinitinib, or other targeted therapy outside a clinical trial. And I will say, too, getting back to our survey, because we also surveyed the 12 faculty who are working with this, and I assume you two took the survey. I know you did take the survey, and we found your response, Bob, and the investigators 100%, but we, I think it was 29% of the docs who would consider off-study treatment. Your eyebrows just jumped up for the people out on the road, Tony. Does that surprise I, I, you? I know that us, you know, as doctors, we want to hurt, but primum null nocere, these drugs, you know, do have side effects. The risk of bleeding, the risk of arterial thromboembolic event, and I'm talking about serious bleeding, not the day-to-day, you know, bothersome side effects are substantial bleeding? for a year. Bleeding. With sunitinib? With sunitinib and sorafenib. What kind of bleeding? TKI increased the risk of all-grade bleeding in general. Is that a coagulopathy or what is I haven't heard so, of So this is interesting. I think targeting VEGF itself, VEGF at the level of the cells could be beneficial and participate in the hemostatic balance. So interrupting that signal, although at the level of the cancer cell and the endothelial cell, you know, this is an anti-cancer therapy, but at the level of the normal cell can lead to some undesired consequences. We have just finished a meta-analysis that we published in Lancet Oncology, looking at sunitinib and sorafenib in all the different phase two and in the randomized phase three trial conducted. And we have found an increase in all grade of bleeding with a hazard ratio of two. So that absolutely must be a pretty low number. What is it? A so those are the numbers overall are in the range of with all grade bleeding, 14, 15%. 14, all grade bleeding. With high grade bleeding, we haven't seen that, but this is because probably these are small numbers. And so what kind of clinically, what kind of bleeding are you talking about? So when we did the meta-analysis, we looked at some trial reported just any bleeding. But when the bleeding was specified, it was epistaxis, it was gastrointestinal bleeding, it was not mainly CNS bleeding. So these were not lethal. So Bob, we hear a lot about epistaxis with bevacizumab. Have you seen clinical episodes of bleeding that you attributed to these drugs? Yeah, I agree with Tony. They're all associated with bleeding to some degree. and But I mean, you know, epistaxis with bevacizumab usually isn't that big a deal. Is that what you're talking about, or these are serious bleeds? There are some patients that I've treated with sunitinib who have had pretty serious epistaxis. Right. The other area is from the GI tract, some GI bleeding. Hmm. So the serious events of bleeding are not common, but they do occur. So this man then, getting back to the point at which he had metastatic disease and had some pulmonary nodules and these abdominal, Mm -hmm. were they nodes or where do you think they were? So these were soft tissue masses Mm -hmm. and they were biopsy proven. Bob, what would you have been thinking about at that point, 78 years old? Was he symptomatic from the meds? He was symptomatic. He had abdominal pain. He had bloating, constipation, and he had mild to moderate increase in his colon. So this was almost pseudo-obstructive. What would you be thinking, Bob? Well, the abdominal masses are in a bad location, particularly the one abutting the colon. So if he was having some signs or symptoms of obstructing, like abdominal pain or bloating, I would have him be evaluated by a surgeon to make sure that he wasn't developing a partial obstruction, to make sure that he didn't need some sort of surgical intervention for his renal cell cancer. 
That's probably what I would do first based on this. And that was what exactly was done. He was evaluated by a surgeon who said under normal circumstances he would go there and do a surgery, but he didn't think that the patient is a surgical candidate. Hmm. So he was then referred to me at that time. Wow. Okay, Bob. Then what? Well, I think this is a patient then that needs medical intervention. It's either medical intervention or he's going to progress and have a short life related to his renal cell cancer. So with regard to the choice of medications, I think that the agent that's associated with the most robust responses is generally the one that I use in first line is sunitinib. So I would do some testing to see if I felt this patient would tolerate sunitinib, and that would probably include uh, EKG and a MUGA to assess his heart function since he has a cardiac history. Absolutely. And an EKG was done and showed some changes. However, these were not different from an EKG done two years ago, so stable. I have done an echocardiogram and his ejection fraction was 57%. So based on that, I started sunitinib and I did start sunitinib at full dose, 50 milligram once a day, four week on, two week off. So this patient tolerated sunitinib very well, except for some nausea and mild diarrhea. I saw the patient very frequently, a patient like that. I was seeing him every two weeks and his abdominal pain, bloating and pseudo obstruction disappeared. However, his second cycle was complicated with significant diarrhea, the opposite problem, despite the use of Imodium, and this was complicated with renal failure. Normally, his creatinine was around 1.5, 1.7, went up to 2.8, likely due to dehydration. He was hospitalized for two days, hydrated, his creatinine came down, and at that time, we decreased sunitinib to one dose level and continued to monitor him closely. I can tell you that we repeated CT scans after two cycles, and this patient had overall an 80% decrease in the sum of his masses in the lung as well as in his abdomen with no more obstruction or dilatation of the colon. And he continues to tolerate the therapy well with one dose reduction with mild diarrhea controlled and mild hand-foot-skin reaction. And he has been almost a year and a half on therapy. Bob, what about the choice of first-line therapy, and particularly what are the patients, if any, I mean, we hear this thing about the poor-risk patients should be considered for temsorolinus. I'm not sure how many people pull out the formula to calculate that or even know it. And then for the rest of the patients, people think more about sunitinib. Is that really the way it happens, the way you do it, or does everybody get sunitinib? Well, I generally assess their MSKCC risk. And for patients that are favorable or intermediate, my first choice is sunitinib. The patients that have the poor risk features, then the choice for me is either sunitinib or temsorolimus. The patients that are the best candidates for temsorolimus are the ones that are really quite ill from their disease, that have a lot of symptoms regarding fatigue, that are nauseous, that you may not be able to tolerate oral therapy, be concerned that they'd be vomiting. Those are the patients that I offer temsorolimus. Because of the response and the outcome with the sunitinib in patients who I believe will tolerate that intermediate or poor, that's usually what I attempt first. How about you, Tony? So same line as Bob. I think my problem is when I have a patient on paper who's a poor-risk MSKCC, I offer temsorolimus, but there are those situations where I offer sunitinib. And one patient preference, IV versus oral therapy, who doesn't want to make the weekly trip to our institution, 
And the second one is in this patient, perhaps like this case, I don't recall, to be honest with you, his MSKCC risk group. I believe it was intermediate. But if this man was poor and you needed therapy and he has a lot of disease burden, whereby achieving significant shrinkage, you will achieve significant palliation, I will probably use sunitinib. Are there situations, you mentioned oral versus IV, where you'll use everolimus instead of temsorolimus purely based on it being oral? I would not. I think the trials fit in their place. Poor risk frontline temsirolimus, second line sunitinib and or sorafenib failure, everolimus. Despite that both are serolimus analog and many physicians and experts think that is quote-unquote the same drug, I think we have to reserve it to its indications. You know, Bob, I think in renal cell, and I specifically remember you, you know, I think it was the first time I really saw waterfall plots. I'm not sure if they, had they been done in other tumors and presented. The first that I remember is with the serafinib, the first time I saw the waterfall plots and sinitinib shortly thereafter. And then I think they've been applied to targeted therapies with other cancers. But I agree the first time that they were really used were with the RCC. I just think it's so fascinating to look at those things. When a patient, for example, in this situation has got a symptomatic problem where response really couldn't make a difference, if they were to ask you in general with sunitinib, what's the chance that my tumor is going to get smaller? What number would you give them? About two-thirds of patients have some degree of tumor shrinkage, and between 40 and 50% have a major response. Why don't we talk about your 67-year-old man? Oh, yeah. So this 67-year-old delightful man was known to have metastatic clear cell renal cell carcinoma upon presentation. His MSKCC risk factor at that time put him in the intermediate risk category. He presented, I believe, in 2004 or 2005, and he was with another provider. And that time at our institution, we had a CALGB study open that combines interferon with bevacizumab and compare it to interferon alone. And this man met the eligibility requirement and was started on this therapy, luckily with the combination of interferon plus bevacizumab. How did he do in terms of side effects? So in terms of side effect, he needed dose reduction for interferon. He needed two dose reduction with interferon, but he was not having side effects from bevacizumab, such as bleeding or hypertension, minor hypertension controlled by one antihypertensive agent. Bob, what do we know about dose reduction of interferon and interferon bevacizumab combinations, how it impacts on efficacy? The data was presented by Bernardo Scudier from the Avrin trial that showed that if you're started out on the combination but you need to drop the interferon, that it didn't appear to impact negatively on efficacy, that those patients had the same good outcome as patients who were continued on the combination. I guess that brings up the question of how low you could really go. It kind of reminds me a little bit of arena tecan and cetuximab that you sort of feel like you have to do it, but you don't really think it's helping that much. I don't know. And I think, you know, that is reasonable. It's unfortunate that bevacizumab, to my knowledge, was the first agent to be investigated and to yield the positive result in a randomized phase two trial published in the New England Journal of Medicine by Jim Yang in patients who failed IL-2. And we just now, five years later, or more than five years, we just got it approved. So what we don't have is a trial in the first line that has bevacizumab alone. 
which definitely will cut on those side effects with interferon. We don't have that, and in fact, the FDA labeling is to use bevacizumab with interferon. And Bob, there aren't too many tumors where you see responses to single-agent Bev, certainly not breast or lung, really colon, maybe ovary. What do we know about predictors of response and RCC to BEV or, you know, even mechanisms involved? Well, I think that's a good point. And with bevacizumab plus interferon, one of the key facts that led us to believe the interferon was important was the fact that the response rate with the combination is consistently higher than bevacizumab alone. With the first study that Tony alluded to, the Jim Yang study, the response rate was less than 10%. And the response rates have been consistently been reported in the 20 to 30 range with the combination the other thing that, although it's difficult to, you can't really compare across studies, the PFS particularly, and the median PFS in the Escudier Averin trial was considerably longer than that, which had been reported by Ron Bukowski with a bevacizumab alone study in first-line therapy. So those were kind of signals that interferon might be important. So what happened with this man next? So this man progressed on this trial after, in fact, 12 months. And then at that time, sorafenib got approved, and he was put on sorafenib. He did not have a response, but he had some mild tumor shrinkage. And after seven months, his disease grew. He was tolerating sorafenib very well. So we increased the dose of sorafenib to 600 milligram by mouse twice a day. And he tolerated this dose very well with mild diarrhea controlled by anti-diarrheal agent. And he exhibited further tumor shrinkage from his baseline CT scan upon progression. So we continued high-dose sorafenib. Now that's been seen in clinical trials too, escalating dose and seeing a response. So to my knowledge, there are two pieces of evidence regarding sorafenib. There is one first that comes from Bob Amato from the Methodist Hospital, where different to what we did here, he escalated the dose immediately from 400 to 600, I think in a month, in 28 days, to 800 twice a day. And what is interesting is the vast majority of patients, I believe around 90%, were able to tolerate that. And the response rate was up to 55%, knowing single-agent sorafenib at the FDA-recommended dosage, the response is 2 to 10%. I haven't seen that in my practice. I haven't been able to escalate sorafenib except in patients that were already on sorafenib and were tolerating it very well for a long period of time, and then their disease grew very little, and then I increased the dose to 600 and repeated the CAT scan. I didn't go to 800 directly. So the result that Amato reported seemed to be a little outlier with our medical experience overall. But in this man, he did tolerate. He did tolerate it, and, and he, he stayed. He stayed another seven months on six hundred twice a day, and then he progressed. And then I did put him on everolimus as part of a biomarker trial, and that brings me back to the question you raised with Bob: the predictors of response. Currently, we do not have any molecular predictors of response in renal cell carcinoma currently, both in the metastatic or even in the localized therapy, nothing that is standardized and used in routine. So one of the things we're trying to do is, for example, for Everolimus, is to try 
to figure out who are the responders, who are the patients that will benefit, let's say, who will benefit from therapy. So we have a biomarker study that requires at baseline a biopsy, fresh biopsy of a metastatic lesion that, you know, the patient agreed upon, and then he was started on everolimus. So you're looking for biomarkers in the tissue? Absolutely. What are you looking for? So we are looking to do some gene profiling to differentiate responders versus non-responders, knowing that the response rate is very low. When I say responders, is people that had, for example, a progression-free survival of six months compared to the one who progressed immediately. So people who benefit from treatment. We are looking also to validate our former results, looking at some mTOR pathway, a downstream mTOR pathway component. If these are activated, phosphorylated, like phosphorylated S6 and other, perhaps those are the patients that benefit from mTOR inhibitor in a prospective fashion. Bob, didn't you present some stuff at the ASCO before last? Was it HIF? That's right. Was it Yes, we found by Western blots that HIF expression. Hypoxia-inducible uh, Right, factor. that's right. Predicted a positive outcome to sunitinib. Have you continued to study that, or what have you taken? Continued to work's ongoing to look more in terms of the gene expression and so forth and how it correlates to response at our hospital and other places. I think it's an ongoing effort, but some of the signals point to HIF expression as a potential marker for response. But as Tony mentioned, it hasn't been defined. It's not part of standard practice, can't be used yet to direct therapy. So what happened with this man? Got the everolimus? So this man, after only one cycle, he had increase in his lipid, blood sugar. He had mouse sores. But then upon repeating the CT scan a cycle later, he has progression in his target lesion, and he had pulmonary infiltrate with shortness of breath. Presumably non-infectious pneumonitis? Absolutely. Did you have to give him steroids? I had to give him steroids, and this patient felt much better on steroids. We stopped everolimus, and most recently, a few weeks ago, the patient was started on sunitinib. And he called me just on my way to the airport, reporting increase in the blood pressure in the 170 range. Hmm. Is he symptomatic from the tumor? He is not symptomatic from the tumor, except for a mild chest wall pain in one of the target lesions, but that is well controlled on acetaminophen. It's amazing. These cases really do sound a lot like breast cancer, you know, sequential therapy. Absolutely. It's almost a little bit hormonal-like in a way. You know, you kind of tinker with stuff, you know, chronic sort of side effects and toxicity. Amazing. Where do you think things are going, Bob? Where do you think we'll be in two or three years? Are there a lot of new agents out there do you think will be available, or are we kind of hit a plateau? Well, for the most part, the agents that seem to have activity are VEGF-directed, either against the ligand or against the receptor, or the mTOR class of agents. There's a couple different drugs that are on the horizon that have slightly different profiles, maybe more selective, that are being studied and maybe better tolerated or even more effective But I think that now we need to kind of look for new targets, fresh approach, while we kind of fine-tune the best first-line treatment, the optimal sequence, and so forth. 